0: Today's episode is brought to you by Balulu Studios. Balulu Studios is a small event space located at 3131 Bull Street in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, visit balulustudios.com backslash eventspace. That's B U L U L U studios.com backslash eventspace. Thank you for listening to The Ten Frame. This is Kevin, and in this episode, Kelly and I have a conversation with Gretchen Wagner, an artist and educator living and working in Atlanta, Georgia. Her current practice is submerged in printmaking and is hyper-focused on color theory. We talked about her multi-layered process of printing and modifying her colorful pieces of artwork. And we learned about her interest in pushing her work away from the wall and into the 3D realm in the form of sculptures. You can view samples of Gretchen's work at her website, gretchen-wagner.com. If you are interested in what Kelly is working on, please follow him on Instagram at Kelly K Thompson Art, and my work is also on IG at Kevin Will Paint.
1: Welcome to the Ten Frame. Thank you for taking yeah. some time out of your afternoon, Gretchen. Uh, before we get started, just wanted to let everyone know where they can find you. So if you can just read out your IG and your social media where people can, uh, can look at your work.
2: Yeah. Um, so on Instagram, um, I am studio underscore Gretchen Wagner. And then my web address is Gretchen hyphen Wagner.com.
1: Awesome. Well, again, thank you. Gretchen, why don't you give us and um, our audience a little snapshot of what you're making, what you make right now, and and, um, and how you make it. I have been fascinated with your work and your process since first seeing it. I think it was at um, a Spring Forward show in Atlanta a couple of years back. And uh, yeah, you had a whole sense. wall full of, of these small pieces, and it was, it was kind of everyone kind of stopped when they went into the room. So, because they have such a presence.
2: Yeah, right on. Um, well, right now my process is very printmaking driven. Um, so that that's, that's kind of a, that's a unique setup for me because printmaking is a very process driven practice. So, and, and as is the way that I sort of approach my work. So, um, I've got this printmaking process in terms of how it is that I'm making the work, which I can talk more in detail about that too. Um, But the work is very color focused, a lot of minimal geometric abstraction, um, kind of symmetrical shapes that when you can rotate them, they can sort of situate on top of each other. Um, And I'm, I'm really, really interested in color as a content. Um, so of course I use color as the medium in my work and that's printmaking inks litho inks specifically um, but I want color to also be the subject matter of the work and so after I go through my process of, of printing each monoprint um, I then pierce the paper and I sew these glass beads into the surface and I make this sort of it looks nearly perfect you know it's the beads have this like little bit of wobble to them, but it looks almost like a machine made matrix on top of the pieces.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that part too? I'm, I've i only seen your work at SCAD, so I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm not like really dialed into it, but I do remember there mm-hmm. being some um, projection, something happening to the surface and I didn't know it was yeah. beads. So can you, would you mind talking a little bit more about that?
2: Uh, so I think that that the the reason for the embroidery sort of is derived from the print process itself. So let me let me tell you a little bit about that and yeah. then like how the embroidery came to be. Um, so I use a relief form of printmaking. So, you know, there's all these different varieties of printmaking like intaglio and uh, planographic printmaking, which is lithography and Relief printmaking is a lot like linoleum block printing or wood block printing, except instead of a a linoleum surface or a wood surface or an MDF surface, um, I work with sheets of acrylic plastic and I take that acrylic and I create these motifs and these patterns, these like geometric, I call them graphic palindrome shapes because they're the same forwards as they are backwards. Um, But I design those in the computer because then To get them laser cut, I have to have a a digital file, right? Um, And then once everything is cut, it's all to this beautiful level of incredible beyond human precision, which is really cool. Um, And then I take those plates and I bring them into the shop and then I can put whatever color on them I want. So I'll I'll do lots of different colorway trials. Um, And printmaking is inherently this, this medium that is always right on the edge of what's happening technologically. So like, as printmaking has evolved, it's kind of absorbed different new technologies along the way to be able to refine those processes and make different types of images. Um, but after I ink my plates, I put them into the press, and my paper's all in there. And I make this like really beautiful little sandwich of plastic ink and paper. Um, and then I put all of that through this press under tremendous pressure. Um, and you get this pressure that pushes up from both sides. Um, and in that exact instant moment that the print is made, the artist isn't even seeing the process at all. Um, it's all hidden under all these layers, like pieces of felt and rubber blankets and things like that. And then this big heavy cylinder. And you don't even get to see the moment that the thing that you've spent all this time conceptualizing and like making all of these decisions about, um, you have to wait at the moment you- that it's made.
0: You have to wait until you pull the material back up, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the art of the, the pull, right? Like when you pull a print, it's that removing the paper from your matrix in some way or, or removing your matrix from your paper.
1: Can and you, then
2: you get to see it.
1: Yeah. Can yeah. you explain the monoprint process too for people that may not quite understand? Is So the monoprint means... Yeah once you've gotten one that you're happy with that's it right that's the only you're you're not really pulling multiples of the same Mm -hmm. design is that correct
2: yes there's there's elements of that that are very true so um i think the biggest thing is that there's two different categories in in print there's monotyping and then there's monoprinting and A monotype is when you have just a big sheet that's this open plate and you're almost painting with your medium on the surface and then you pull a print from that. Monoprinting, on the other hand, is when you use the same matrix over and over again, but there might be modifications in the way that you're applying your color or your ink to that surface. So, but you are are correct that in my process, I actually do pull multiples and that's only so that I can pick like the perfect one to do the embroidery on. So I usually have two or three um, and I label them as good, better, best as I print each layer. And then at the end, the goods and the betters go into a folio that is becoming too full in my house and the other ones get embroidered. <clears throat> but
1: is there going to be an outtake sale at some yeah. point? I, I want to know when that going to be. I want
2: to check your website. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I need to do that, but <laughs> In some ways, they feel incomplete without that surface texture on them for me. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe I could change up the way that I like retexture, like recontextualize the surface of the work um, for a version that is like I consider off quality prints, you know? Um, but I can't throw them away because my sheets of paper are $20 a sheet. So it's like when I pull these. These prints, I'm just wow. like, that's a really expensive piece of paper, so I guess I'm going to keep it.
0: Yeah. You can't use it for notes or. Uh...
2: No, no.
1: <laughs> I could see a giant and collage at some point with a lot of these pieces together. That would be amazing. And for, for those who have not seen your work, I highly encourage people to go and, and look at your, your portfolio online, but it's hard to describe the color. I know color is really a subject or it's it's really a focus. And I would almost consider you as a color theorist in some ways because there's so much focus and so much um, attention that I know goes into the choices that you're making with color and how... Colors interact with each other when placed next to each other and when transparently kind of laid on top of each other because you have these, you know, amazing mixtures of colors together. Um, how did that become a focus of your attention in printmaking, or was it always there? Was it something that just got refined over time, or was this? I mean, it, it seems like you have kind of a scientific mindset and a scientific method and i i know that kind of came out in some of your thesis work um but yeah explain a little bit about how that i mean if you could just back up got to be part of your process or the focus of it
2: yeah yeah and and color as a subject matter has been my focus since um long before i got to my master's program or my grad studies um so I kind of approach things from that scientific method perspective um, because of how I grew up. Um, And when I was faced with having to write this paper in grad school, the only kind of paper that makes sense to me is like a research paper that you would write about an experiment that you're conducting and all the different variables that you manipulated to get different results or try different things. Um, But... My mom was a civil engineer when I was growing up, and then she later became a high school math teacher um, as I As I grew older. And my father is an aerospace and a mechanical engineer. Um, and my sister is, is an engineer and an architect. Um, so this analytical thinking is really the way that I grew up thinking um, and sort of tinkering around with things. And my dad would always... I would say I have this idea I want to make something will you make this thing for me because he had this really incredible shop still does has this really incredible shop Um, and he would say I'll I'll make you anything you want but you got to draw me a picture and it couldn't just be any picture it had to be like a picture that was to scale and so I always think in that way so like even my sketching process is all like on graph paper Things are scaled appropriately, and then I scale those up as I work from concept sketch to digital mock-ups to creating the plates, et cetera. Um, So when I started my career in industry, though, um, after graduating with a degree in textiles, I was the the really creative, artsy one in the family, um, I found a love in the dye lab at SCAD. Um, In the Fibers Building, they have this really incredible dye lab like state of the art it's really tremendous and I started to think like oh color is like it's arts but it's also science so it's these two things that like relate to me and the more that I learned about color like the relativity of color I was like wow this is like Einstein's theory of relativity and we're talking about things that are visual and um, it doesn't feel so theoretical I can actually see that relational quality of color right before me um and I took up a job as a colorist. Like I, I worked for a textile manufacturer and um, people would design these beautiful p- patterns. And then I would figure out how to bring the color to them. And so I started to become really familiar with the color. And throughout my practice, my design, my like my daylighting as a designer and my moonlighting as an artist, they started to like have this moment where they crossed over in grad school. Um, and then I started to build these prints that were in series because it reminded me of the way that we would design products in the textile world. Like you'd have a pattern and then you would make that same pattern in six or 12 different colors for the client to choose from. And in a way, that's my approach when I'm printing, too. Like I'll make six different color variations so that the collector can choose the one that speaks to them most.
0: How did how did you get the pattern? How did you land on the, how would you describe the pattern that you make and how did you get there?
2: Yeah. So, um, the, I think the pattern, like initially I was just interested in sort of a rounded square and I didn't care so much that like the two diagonals were a slightly larger diameter radius or yeah, slightly larger diameter versus, you know, the opposing corners, Um, that geometry really came because I wanted to explore this one particular shape and it was just like a, a squiggly snake that would go up and down a certain number of times. And then it would begin in one corner, bottom left corner, and it would terminate in the top right corner for balance. Um, and then when I made that shape, I was like, okay, so the diameter of these, corners needs to be smaller than the diameter of like the bigger rounded corners and in doing that I was able to start utilizing my plates in a way that like I could pick them up I could ink them pick them up and then rotate them 180 degrees and they would fit right back in like a puzzle piece Um, and so I, I like built in to the creation of the plates this registration system on the press so, that when I would print layer after layer, I would always know that everything was sandwiching right on top of itself. And that's how I arrived at the shape.
0: That's clever. Um, and,
2: and now I can't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah.
0: It reminds me of a sound wave or a, yeah, sound wave, I guess.
1: Yeah, I kind of get some, because I have a graphic design background, I definitely get some, some historic graphic references too. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of some Bauhaus shapes, um, just because of the, kind of the rounded nature of, you know, there aren't any, there are no corners. Um, so yeah, it definitely gives me that feeling of, you know, there's some historical context that comes through, whether that's intentional or not. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, maybe not intentional, but that kind of stuff is always in the background of your mind. Like, I've studied a lot of Bauhaus arts. Um, Joseph and Annie Alvers are, like, a really big influence of mine in my practice. And so, um, yeah, I mean, like, that influence could be there, and you just don't even know that it's being pulled into the work when you're sketching. Right. But, yeah, there aren't usually very sharp corners. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, not sure why that.
1: Thinking about the printmaking process too, I took some printmaking, I did lithography and I did some relief printing. How much of your process involves mixing and playing with ink and do you, are there specific inks that you prefer over others? I'm sure there's a huge Mm -hmm. amount of trial and error that comes into play when you're, you know uh, when you're mixing especially if you're working on transparency versus opaque colors, I mean that that's your lab, right? Is it? that's kind of like your your yeah. <laughs> your scientific place?
2: Yeah, the studio is definitely a lab. yeah. And it's like the environmental conditions too around you also change that. Like it's really humid in the summer and things might take longer to dry than in the winter when things are dry or when the air is drier. Um, And that influences the way that you sequence your projects. Like I got to put this first layer down and normally I can only wait, I can wait 48 hours for something to dry, one layer to dry. But then, you know, you start changing up the variables and now you need three weeks for something to dry before you can print the next layer. Um, I am very interested in the chemistry of it all and the pigments themselves. Do people often share brands that they like? Because I do have brands of ink Let's that I have it. found. Yeah,
1: I'd like to know. <laughs> yeah. what you that—that that was kind of a roundabout way of me getting to that. I assume that you have yeah. favorites. Um, I didn't know if yeah. you if you attempt to make your own
2: or. So yeah, what, um, what do you I've got? I've done a little bit of it all. Yeah, so um, and I'm I'm by no means an expert in ink chemistry and lithography is a is an extraordinarily chemically driven process you know? Um, so the chemistry of the inks is very specific in that process as well. So, and relief. Really, my biggest thing was about getting my ink to go down really smooth and flat so that I could get these beautiful washes of color and like too much ink on your plate yields. My mentor, Robert Brown refers to it as like an orange peel texture. So like, that texture of the surface of an orange, it, it leaves that sort of looking texture, which means you get these these valleys where the ink is thinner and these these peaks where the ink is a little bit thicker and it gets modeled. So you need to roll out this perfectly almost glassy layer of ink um, that's super smooth. And you can put different things in your ink to smooth your ink and make your roll go flatter, but it might make your ink because the inks are all oil-based right so that fat over lean process that it applies in oil painting applies here too so if you make your ink really slick you're probably adding a lot of oil to your ink which means now it's really fat and it will be hard to put another layer on top of without getting rejection um and i've run into that myself um but in terms of brands I love Cranfield inks. They're amazing. Like they are so smooth right out of the can. And I never use a color right out of the can. I always mix, you know, mix my own based off of a double primary palette with like warm and cool versions of each of the primaries. Um,
1: And if anybody from that company is listening, Gretchen Wagner can always use a sponsorship.
2: Yeah. And they're transparent based, especially because my ink, I usually work with them in a transparent way. So the inks come out of the cans and they, well, gosh, I'm like just picturing the way that the ink knife feels in your hand and it's so delicious. You just want to like slobber up the ink, um, which I've been told is a sign that you are a printmaker. If you want to taste that ink, it's really quite delicious looking. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, So you scrape that really pigmented ink out and it will print almost opaque like that. I mean, you can, you'll need to add a couple things to it to make it print opaque, but um, I dilute it down with a transparent base um, and Cranfield's transparent base rocks. Like it is amazing. It doesn't yellow on me. It prints really smooth every time. And in the shop, we have a mix of brands. Like we also have Hanko brand um, ink in there and those work great too. Like I also like to work with those, but they're just like a slightly stiffer ink. So it's a little stickier and it makes a different sound. And it's just this really sensory process when you're in there because you're rolling on this glass slab with this ink and you're looking to hear a certain sound. You're looking to feel a certain amount of resistance. Um, And so all of that feels really, really tactile. That's why that moment of printing, when you feel so separate from the process, it's like, it rips your heart, you know, because so you want to be there because so you were there for everything else. Um, yeah, and that's,
1: that's one of the things that Curtis kind of taught us in class. Curtis Bartone was one of my mentors in, in printmaking, was to listen for that sound of when it kind of gets that perfect consistency. And yeah. I got to know that sound a little bit, too. And it is very satisfying hearing that once you finally get to that point that you're like yes i think i can yeah. i can start rolling onto my substrate
2: yeah and you just feel like you never when you hit that stride in the shop then you you find that that flow state right like the ink is the right consistency you've got this rhythm down it almost feels like a choreography like roll the roller back and forth three times, pick it up, put it on my plate, roll it back and forth three times. You know, like you get this repetition and your brain can kind of shut off and you never want that print session to end. Um, Because the next day, the the energy will be different in the shop and the humidity will be different. And what worked yesterday won't work today. And um, you'll have a different set of obstacles that you have to overcome in that space.
1: Right, and speaking of flow state, tell us a bit, little bit about the transition too, because your your pieces kind of have two distinctly separate processes. You have the kind of the design and the implementation of the printmaking, and then once that's done and dry, you're applying these beads, which is a very I can only imagine as a kind of a meticulous process, and I would. I'm thinking about it. It makes me a little nervous just thinking about having this perfect, you've grabbed the perfect print, you know, you've got the best out of the good, better, best, and then you got to start part, I'm assuming poking holes in it. And to me, that's got to be a little nerve wracking, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That part is actually. And um, that that part is interesting because, you know, there's one type of flow state in the print shop and then there's a different one at home. You're embroidering and until you started talking to me about this I actually never really thought about how yes the process there's two different processes that go into the piece but my setting also really significantly changes from being in this like community-based environment where there's people working on all kinds of stuff you know there's people that don't know anything about printmaking and they're coming up saying like hey is this right you know like interrupting your process and all of that and then the embroidery is like completely in solitude um, for extraordinary lengths of time where you're like only moving your arms in a really particular motion um so i i've never really even thought about the way that the setting um changes when you go from printing to embroidering after but those first moments when you pierce the paper are frightening um and I would be lying if I said that I never poked a hole somewhere where I didn't mean to, um, that does happen. Do you use and matrix? I've gotten very, I, well, I act, this, this part is probably, I'm sure there's an easier way. So like crowdsourcing better options, guys, because this part of the process is quite tedious. Honestly, I think more tedious than the embroidery because you, you can't be totally in a state of mind where you're like detached from what you're doing. Cause if you lose track of your number, or what you're counting, you will make a mistake. So, um, each of my beads is spaced on this matrix. That's three sixteenths of an inch, um, which is just a really unfortunate fraction because it's a challenging one to work with. Um, but When you multiply these up, you get to increments of three-quarters of an inch, which works really nicely with my plates, which which I like. Three-sixteenths is easily divisible into three-quarters. But I lay my sheets of my print down onto this really, really big cork board surface. Um, And my paper is very thick. I use a 300-pound paper, so it's, it's difficult. There's some resistance as well to push all the way through. Um, so I, I lay it down on this cork and then I have these big, big rulers and I mark out every three sixteenths, I give myself these hash marks that I line up down the sides of the prints. Um, and sometimes those are still visible at at the end. I, I do my best to erase them, but sometimes you can still see those marks on the paper. Um, and then I tack my ruler in and I like pinch it in there, holding my paper and my ruler in place. And then one by one, I use an awl, and I just poke down the fractions. And I don't even mark my ruler. I just, now my hand kind of muscle memory knows what 3 sixteenths of an inch is. And then I finish a row, and then I, I slide my paper up, and I leave my ruler static on the corkboard. Just slide my paper all the way through. And poke holes one at a time, and it's quite painful on the wrist. <laughs>
0: you mentioned one of your family members is an architect, right?
2: Yes, my sister.
0: Your sister. Um, have you ever exper- experimented, experimented with a drafting table? With this the ruler that slides up and down the table? Are you familiar with that? It's on a system uh, yeah. of pulleys? Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. That
2: would be a good idea. And then you, be could a just really make, good idea.
0: you could just make the matrix on the... So it's basically a bar with a flat piece of plastic, clear plastic, on one of the side maybe it's on both sides of it, but you could just make your three 16ths of an inch. Not that you're asking for yeah. input and I don't know why I'm sharing that no, with no. you, but I am. My, I am. My because background is in architecture, intense. so that's where my mind went. I was thinking, oh well that might be yeah. resourceful. Um, and they sell it individually, so you could just nail it or put it wherever you wherever you want it. But
2: Oh, that would be perfect so then i could have the cork surface underneath because that part is important yeah. or or any surface that's um even a felt surface would be fine like a, what you would screen print fabric on top of something that has a little cushion you know right on. so yeah. that the all can go all the all the way through the paper i have one that's other brilliant i
0: i have another question about the scale of your work i'm i'm assuming it's based on the scale the size of the the press and are you, is that something that you're comfortable with or do you ever have a desire to make larger prints or would that have to be modular or do you have access to other larger presses?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so many things in there. Yeah. So um, I do, I do print on my plates, my paper, are all formatted to fit on a very particular press, um, but it is possible to work bigger, and I would love to work bigger. Um, when you start working bigger on bigger presses, the way that I would create the matrix would need to change. Um, so, and maybe instead of laser cutting my matrix, I would need to use like a water jet or a CNC router to make them because I would need my plate to be bigger, um, and. It also requires additional hands in the shop. Like when once you start exceeding a certain scale of like a 22 by 30 inch sheet of paper or 30 by 40 sheet inch sheet of paper, um, you're going to need more than one person helping you print. Yeah. And it might be helpful to have like two people. Um, and that is typically how things work in the publishing world at all of the incredible fine art print studios and presses that are around the country and around the world um you know they've got one person that's dedicated to ink handling and making sure that the chemistry is right for that and then one person who's focused on the plate and one person who's focused on the paper and um that can be helpful when you start working really large um and I really have a desire to actually start pushing myself taking what I've learned from printmaking um because that aligns with the way that my brain thinks very strategically and start exploring these forms three-dimensionally. So the architecture background that you have, the one my sister has, um, all of that is so interesting to me because you are designing environments um, where humans interact with one another and they interact with the architecture. And because I'm so interested in the relativity of color, I've been thinking a lot more about how geographical location as well as time are very important to how we perceive color, You know, the way that colors shift even just over the course of a day, the way that the sun moves, um, and how that translates on a bigger scale to how things are experienced globally and how color is experienced differently in different parts of the world because of their um, access to the sun and light. And your age. I'm now thinking of... maybe people's
0: ages impacts color too because your eyes um, potentially could degrade or whatever. I don't know.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. And they do. They do. Um, Trust me. As you get older, I
1: understand. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I can. That's as you. Now that you think about or that you brought that up, I I can really see some of your pieces being translated as three dimensional and large and in public places. I mean, I know you're kind of taking, you know, your idea and and expanding upon that. But being able to interact with one of those at a large scale, I think would be pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. I um right at the end of my grad program I I taught myself how to use rhino at the suggestion of my sister because she was like That'll be easy for you, Gretchen. Like you get to plot your points X, Y, and Z, you know, in space. And I was like, Oh, that makes so much sense to me, you know? And so I just was like typing in these coordinates and I built this really elaborate three-dimensional palindrome where the terminuses were of the, of the shape were in opposite corners. And then I 3d printed them, but they were only like this size. But then I started like picturing myself. Yep. Sorry. No, no video. Yeah. Um Like eight, eight inches, six inches, maybe Yeah. limit the limits of the 3d printer, right? You know, and I started to picture myself small and being able to walk around that and through that. And that started to get me really excited.
0: Do you have um, a favorite color or just random question?
2: <laughs> my students ask me this all the time. I would say that I don't, but if you were to be in my house with me, you would think my favorite color is orange I have a lot
1: of orange in my life. Well, I was going to pick orange for you. Um, huh. If you don't have one, I'm I'm going to assign one. Just I I'm, just seeing a lot of your work. I mean, that's such a dominant color in your palette. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe dominant's not the right word, but it's. Um, it it's it appears regularly. And I'm, I'm going to segue a little bit too. When you mentioned your students, can you talk a little bit about your practice as an educator and how that may affect what you're working on. And
2: It's new. It's new. Um, so I just started um, teaching at the university level, um, this past fall. Um, and my focus is design because of my experience working in the commercial interiors industry for, for many years. Um, and so I teach 2d design color theory and 3d design. And of course, color theory is my favorite. Um, and I feel so confident in that space, like try to stump me on something that's related to color, you know, and my students are constantly asking me about that. Um, but what I'm so excited about is that, you know, the way that I work with color is is sort of narrow. It, well, and I wouldn't say that necessarily, but, um, I work with a lot of color relationships, like color harmonies, like, are these triads, are they tetrads, are they complementary colors? And, working with these really specific interactions, relationships that are known. And that's only like one facet. Like, I think I only teach that for like one week in my class. Um, And then there's so many other topics. And I am finding that as I do research for my classes, like what I'm going to be teaching my students, it's influencing my artistic practice. So this past quarter, I've been really focused on pigment and like where pigment comes from. And so I've asked my students to do quite selfishly, I feel like as well um, to do these history of color where they select a pigment and then they're going to do these presentations in my class. And the reason why it's selfish is because I just want to More learn data. about a lot of pigments all at once. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's I'm like, tell me everything about sepia because I don't have time to research, it myself, you know,
1: that's awesome. So, so Gretchen, I got a chance to see your your work in the Gutstein Gallery, uh, and it was called was it Pattern Fields. So yeah. yeah, I know that just ended right a couple like a week or Thanks. so ago. Um,
2: yeah, one week! ago. So.
1: how did that show come about? And can you talk about what's in the future for you as far as uh, participation? Do you have any solo shows coming up, or um, are you looking for a group show or What's happening with you from
2: that point? Yeah. Um, well, I've been realizing that with teaching, it's good to have a couple things on the calendar because it makes you get into the studio. You know, otherwise, you sort of get home from from teaching and sort of say, "Just want to put my feet up for a little yeah. bit." So, having sure. some stuff on the horizon has been a good motivation. Um, the show at Gutstein came about with um, Haley Klauser from the SCAD Museum of Art. She reached out and wanted to talk to me about my work. We scheduled a a studio visit virtually because she lives in Santa. Um, And right away, we just started talking about um, a two person show. And so, um, and that's actually my first time doing something like that. It's either been like a big group show where there's countless numbers of people and the work is all really different and different sizes, media and everything um, or a more solo show where your work has this moment to live independently, like, like how you perceive it to be or, or want it to be. Um, and this is my first time being paired with another artist whose influence is different than mine, Jeremiah Josin, um, who's uh, in the alumni atelier program at SCAD this quarter in Savannah. So he's, a uh, Doing some great work there. Um, we're gonna been speak with him. lots of pictures. I, I didn't yeah. realize
0: he was part of that show. He's we're gonna speak to th- yes. with him in a couple of weeks.
2: Yeah, so. right on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so him and I had several meetings with Haley while we sort of conceptualized the show. There were lots of like one on one things where she would ask us about our process and then and then she started to kind of it started to become this really cool collaboration with the curator, which has never happened to me really before. Um, where she started to perceive my work in a different way and wanted to pair it with this other artist's work and situate it And that was a really cool experience is that was amazing. I thought, starts was it starts to very, frame my work in a different context. Yeah, you it was know? a
1: very good compliment to have this interaction, perfect. which I, I don't it's think perfect. you would think that having the eyes of a curator kind of put your work together with somebody else's or, you know, it's definitely an experience that, that I think would be is beneficial.
2: It was, it was really amazing. And that, that role of the curator, Haley did just such a tremendous job, you know, selecting the two of us where we fit together in a way that didn't feel like we were derivative of each other. We each had our own thing happening. And when I went down and I looked at the show, I, I got really inspired by Jeremiah's work too. And I've started, he has a lot of these really interesting optical illusion type patterns, these kind of like 3d tessellation patterns in his work. I got really into that over my winter break. I started making stuff that looked like that because I just wanted to see how that looked in my medium, you know, Mm. because he's working with oil paint usually on canvas or panel, um, which is a little different than me, but, anyways that that was an amazing experience and it was it was really cool and my first time ever kind of seeing my work in that way um, which provided me with some new insights um in the new year
0: um so I know that you're experimenting with color it's always at the forefront of your work can you talk about maybe where you want to take it or what's what are some of the things that interest you that you want to explore in the future
2: uh, so um a couple of things I've got a couple projects in mind moving forward. We talked a little bit about working three dimensionally. That's something I really want to try doing. Um, I don't, understanding space and with sculpture, it, it being this thing that's in relation to the human body in some way, I, I think that will also mean that my scale is going to have to get much larger, which means that embroidery may not be the, the way that I have that connection with the work. I might establish a different connection. Um, I'm also really interested in working with light. Um, like, I think that this shape, this kind of bent labyrinth shape lends itself to neon really nicely. Mm-hmm. And I would like to see that three-dimensionally as well. Um, and maybe even having the ability to to change the, the light, the color of the light that it emits um, so that I could have these different environmental conditions. Um, I'm thinking fiber optics. And I also have this Yes, fiber optics would be so cool.
0: Yeah, because you can bend the the material. And did you ever look at the the expo that happened? I want to say 2010. The there's a uh, a world expo of buildings, and each country designs a pavilion, and then they have a a destination, a global like a one location in the world where it it varies. I think this one was in Shanghai. I might be wrong, but. England's um inter- their what they presented that year was this you know the helmets that the soldiers wear? Um it's kind of a boxy looking helmet that they wear and it has Yes Do you know what I'm talking about? So um Britain's yes. their installation that or their pavilion that they created was a box and they had fiber optics going in from the exterior to the interior and it was all the seeds that were yeah, that that were um, native to England, I think, is what it was. So, when you look into the the part of the fiber optic, it would you would see the seed. So, but for you, having light and um, multiple colors of it bending it in those shapes that you're talking about, that would be really exciting. I think, I don't know. That would
2: be very cool, and. Initially, I wasn't sure if I knew the reference you were talking about, but I have seen that pavilion. Yeah. Um, I think it's by Heatherwick Wick, Maybe. Archi- that, that architecture Sounds firm. Right. I think they're a UK-based. Yeah. Um, and I remember that Seed Pavilion and thinking that was such an epic concept. And it has that kind of rounded corner, the yep. cube is sort of rounded, which I love. Yeah, and it draws, um,
0: I didn't even make that connection. It draws into your work with the rounded yeah. corners, but...
2: Yeah. Interesting. I should look, I want to say it's like Thomas Heatherwick, um, but I might have that name wrong and I'm not usually good at pulling names like that (laughs) out of thin air. So I probably do have it wrong. My concept. Um, But I'll need to look into it.
0: The way I remembered the concept was probably totally wrong too. (laughs) But I remember the building. I remember the fiber optics and that's where my head went. Memorable. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That would be rad. Um, Yeah. I have this idea of wanting to work with light because after all color is light. So it seems like it's, next thing to try but um i'm so tactile that i'll definitely want some kind of tangible version of light in a way um i'm also sort of conceptualizing a project a project where i would screen print cards that i could then distribute to people around the globe and have them all document these cards using their like mobile devices in their environment's lighting conditions so that i could have this like perfect snapshot of like what this one color looked like all around the world at the exact same time um and, then quality and to start being able to would, like plot it
0: quality yeah. of phones would vary yeah. lighting yeah. like i wonder what like in india what kind of different light bulbs they use versus us or is it the same i have no idea like
1: or if you do it outside when, like, i mean the condition yeah, of light outside. outside, and, outside.
2: You know. <laughs> Yeah, like the light in Scandinavia. So my sister, the the uh, the architect, um, she lives just outside of Copenhagen. The light in Denmark is very, very different than the lights in Georgia, and just in terms of the temperature. I don't mean like how it feels on your skin, but like it's much warmer in temperature here than it is there. And that could be because they're coastal. You know, I, I'm not sure. You know, like there's all these factors that I just don't know. Um, but I'm very interested in that. So that's like a big project that is going to take some time to get off the ground. But I'm hoping that I, cause so many of my students are from all, different places, like all over the country, but also all over the world. And I kind of want my students to participate in this. Like when they go home on a break, like that they could be able to, to help expand the pool.
1: Also, I was thinking, and this is just kind of expanding upon your thought process of putting this outside in three dimension, the material you use, even if it's not lit, if it's lit by the environment using some kind of a translucent material that was color-based where you could kind of get the shift in color depending on the the condition of the light outside.
2: Yeah. I've seen really beautiful like lucite rods where the color is totally homogenous all the way through. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really, I'm really fascinated by translucent materials, but then I have this, like this rub with regards to that being so plastic based and, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I worry about that, you know,
1: for sure. Yeah. I know there's a consideration. And also, you know, there are a lot more options now to material that's durable, that's made out of recycled, you know, whether it's part plastic, recycled plastic or glass and,
2: that what would really what I would start thinking about would be like consistency from the supplier knowing that it always was the same Um, because like as we're talking about the chemistry of the inks changing with you know regulations and environmental conditions you know or like changes to your weather patterns um, would would a supplier be able to be consistent enough because I even noticed that with the acrylic sheets there would be times when a corner of my matrix wasn't printing, you know, and you're like, well, this is an eighth inch all the way around, you know, but in one area, it's actually a 64th of an inch shallower, you know? And so that creates a a problem that you have to problem solve for in the moment.
1: Yeah. Right on. One of the questions we'd like to ask is if you have any, not advice, but if you have a challenge that you've overcome, something that you can share, that might be helpful to somebody, whether it's showing your work or kind of getting your work in front of the right eyeballs or a process that you've found beneficial um, that you could share with, uh, with our audience?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm racking my brain thinking what would be the most valuable thing to share. Um, of course, your network is extraordinarily important. As, a, as an artist um, and I am still ever establishing connections with people. Um, I think the biggest thing when you establish connections with people out in industry or in the art world, um, that the relationship is not always, is not a one-sided one, one that's not based off of that idea that because we've now met, I will now ask something of you later, you know? or in the very immediate future, I will ask you something. Um, But I do think it is. I I think it's important to just get out there and meet people, you know, and and be engaged. Um, Once you leave school, um, it can be building that creative network around you is super important. Um, And that is one of the things that I have always strived to do. Um, And that's outside of you know professional contacts and gallerists and stuff that of course everybody wants to meet and everybody wants to know and have a glass of champagne with on a friday night you know um but other creative people that are like you that are making things and have that same drive as you um because once you leave that academic environment where you're constantly critiquing each other's work and as a result getting better and better at what you do and Having to defend and better articulate what it is that you are doing. It's like a muscle and you start losing it. So, being surrounded by people that you can talk to about their work and your work, and it feels very mutual and it doesn't feel like you're giving or taking. It's just, you know, great creative friendships and, and family that you can share things with. So, I think that's really important. Um, but, like, on a logistics side, get to know your state small business laws and you know like figure out the tax thing you know figure out how you can um sort of sponsor your your purchasing materials and what things you can write off versus what things you can't and can I go to Art Basel this year and have it be part of my business's expenses and Get to know the finances because once you become an artist, you start selling work and you got to figure out the, the numbers part. And if you don't want to do that, find somebody who's good at that to do that for you because <laughs> it is an important part. It's and the numbers.
1: Advice. Good advice. Maximize your dollar. Mm-hmm. You know, being a small yeah. business owner is something that a lot of artists have a hard time with. And we have heard that from a couple other people too, is is really um, figuring out what you can write off. And, you know, if you're working out of your home, you can write off part of your studio and equipment and software and all that good stuff. Um, And then, you know, if you save enough, you can go to um, Biennale or Basel. Yes.
2: Yes. Yes. And like, but that all step like having those numbers in place also helps you figure out how to price your work appropriately too, you know, cause I really think a lot of people undervalue their work or really price it really low. Um, so, and pricing work is a challenge. I mean, if anyone tells you they don't have issues pricing their work, I don't, I don't know. I've never met anyone like that, you know, it's it's hard every single time and it's I hard think- to not let your emotions get in there.
1: That starts in school too. I I think that you're, Unfortunately, you're kind of given the potential of a low expectation. So you're told repeatedly to not price your work too high. You know, that's a relative concept. You know, that's the formula there has to be right for you. You know, if you're losing money, because you're pricing your work too low, you know, you kind of have to figure out. How much time you spend, and what your materials cost, and and how many you need to, yeah. you know, pay the rent on your studio and all that. So, yeah. I think that's it's all relative to your practice.
2: Yeah, like, like all that, all those twenty dollars sheets of paper that I told you I have stacked in a folio, <laughs> right? That have are not for sale. You know, they they sit there, but they cost something to make. Um, and and that pricing model is is hard. Um, but I would. I would suggest as another piece of advice, your price should never go down. It should only ever go up incrementally. So if that means that you start by pricing your work low, that's okay. Everybody does. Everybody does that at the beginning because you just don't know. Or it's the opposite and you price it way too high. But most people price it way too low. And just as it sells, you can incrementally increase your price. You know, and never let your price go back down to what it was before. Just always keep it moving, yeah. no fire (laughs) sale, yeah, a fire sale or like a huge, huge deep discount. I, I mean, there are there are instances in which I will give um, I will give discounts to collectors that are like repeated collectors, or um, or if they're buying a large number of works as like a corporate client or something, a big client want several of something i might reduce the the total price of per each item and find a find a collector a corporate collector that likes your work um because that can really help you know especially an interior design firm if they really like your stuff they'll specify your work on projects and clients always love to have original art in the space versus reproductions of something and yeah i mean find yourself an interior design studio that wants to buy your stuff
1: (laughs) Well, Gretchen, we would like to ask as well: um, What is the soundscape like in your studio? What are you listening to? Are you do you listen to music, or do you like silence? Does it depend be, on which part of your practice? This is going to be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: well, when you're in the when it's you're in the print shop, you okay. to whatever. Yeah, when you're in the print shop, you listen to whatever is playing. Um, which means that when I'm printing, I have extraordinary taste in music, like. Um, Thie- thievery corporation and lemon jelly and cool things that are interesting and make me seem like I have good taste in music but actually I have horrible taste in music um and if it's not Taylor Swift it's some pop punk emo blink 182-esque situation which is usually what I use to like get me pumped up um, or it's stadium country, which it's like, it just keeps getting worse. It's, it's truly, it's truly bad. I have horrible taste in music, but, um, something I can sing along to is great. And I often record time lapses of myself working and poking holes in the paper and stuff like that. And then I'm like, I can't post this because I look like I'm spazzing out because I was dancing to blink 182 the whole time I did. This. And you don't want to use <laughs> um,
1: that as the, as the soundtrack to your, to your video. Nickelback. Oh, or... no,
2: exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's some Nickelback in there. There is some <laughs> Nickelback. I mean, it, it's all over the place. We'll cut that it's out. It's not good. It's, not uh, good. it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: you know, people hate on it, but, you know, they they had their moments. I am not ashamed. They had their moments.
2: I'm not ashamed. That's right. Um, whatever gets you into that creative place and keeps your energy high and, like, lets you, like, push yourself to work 45 minutes after you would have stopped because you were tired, listen to that even if it's Nickelback and sometimes I'll have TV on too. Like, um, I'll just rewatch reruns of things that I've seen before.
1: There you go. What's, what's on the immediate horizon. Do you have any shows that you're prepping for right now?
2: Yeah, I have a show. I am working towards a two person show, which again, so excited because I had so much fun doing that this fall, um, at Spalding Nicks in the spring, um, which is a gallery here in Atlanta. And, um, I'm looking forward to that. And it's gonna be myself and another scat alum, Trish Anderson, who has long been someone who I had on a pedestal in my life as someone that I looked up to and to be able to show with her is I am thrilled. That's exciting. I am thrilled. Yeah. That is awesome. She is a huge inspiration to me. And came out of my same department just a little bit before me. So It feels like we've been running parallel to each other and now our paths are finally intersecting and I am so excited. great.
1: (laughs) Definitely hit us up before the opening so we can plug your, plug the reception and and the times of the show.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. And thank you for thinking of me.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, Thanks for spending some time with us and we look forward to seeing what you make in 2024.
1: Thank you. Gretchen. It was nice to meet you, you. Kevin. Likewise. <laughs> Have right. a good weekend. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.